It's Monday, April 23rd. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Jason Moser, from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Gentlemen, happy Monday. Hey. Happy Monday. Uh, we're going to talk Hasbro, Pfizer, Jim Beam, and yes, we will be talking about stock picking robots, but we are going to start with the story of the day. Shares of Walmart down more than 4% on huge trading volume this morning as bribery allegations in Mexico have led to fears that the company could face significant legal risks down the road. Um, this is a Motley Fool recommended stock in a couple of our services. Joe, I'll just start with you. Not IV. Uh, not, <laughs> not in your service. Um, how serious a problem is this? Because on the one hand, as we've talked about, you know, a lot of times you're doing business overseas. This is kind of the cost of doing business. This, however, seems like a story that that could be different. Yeah, I think this is a serious cultural issue, and I think that we Scott, who was the CEO at the time and is still on the board, should resign for being involved with this, assuming it all comes out to be true. Uh, total lapse in judgment. I can't imagine what they were thinking that they could go on bribing these people, Mexican officials, at such large scale. And then it get all the way to the CEO suite, and they just sweep it under the rug like that. Just to me, it speaks to a lot of corner cutting, and you can't help but wonder what else these guys are doing. Now, that said, I do think it's a serious lapse in judgment, and you're going to see a couple heads roll for it. I wouldn't sell the stock because of it. I think this is a headline issue. I don't think this is going to be a real driver of pain for Walmart, other than just a distraction for management over the short term. And just to be clear, Jason, I mean, this you know, we've seen this story certainly um, in American politics play out before where there's, you know... Bribery in American politics? Well, not, no, I wasn't going to go bribery, <laughs> but just sort of there's there's some kind of issue and then there is a cover-up that goes with it. And, in, and a lot of times in American politics, the cover-up is worse than whatever the original issue is. I mean, in Walmart's case, we've got these allegations that they're bribing officials in Mexico to essentially... Um, get their stores built faster. I think about uh, the stat I saw was about a fifth of Walmart's locations worldwide are in Mexico. So they've got these allegations. They've got an internal investigation that pretty goes pretty much all the way up to the top um, and possibly a cover-up as well. I, yeah, I would say that they certainly don't want to see they don't want to see this escalate into something worse. I mean, if it is if it is a bribery issue, and I mean, there's no other type of foul play or anything involved. Right, I mean, it's this is it's not like anyone probably, got assassinated. Well, here. I was going to say, I mean, they don't need something like murder hitting the headlines or something like that. But assuming that this is relatively you know benign in the sense of its bribery, I, I think it is a headline issue, and I think it will escape you know the headlines uh, soon enough. I mean, I, I would look at this if you have any interest in, in Walmart at all, then this is what we call a good old-fashioned buying opportunity because, I mean, it's not like Walmart is going to go under from this. Now, I mean, were they able to take back of those rollback bribery savings? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if they did, then I'd have to applaud them for that. Low but, prices. I mean, yeah. It's, so, it's, you know, it's, it's a headline, no doubt. I'm sure they're going to get this figured out. It's, they have a lot of other, you know, stigmas associated with them that they always deal with, and this is just going to be another one, I think. <laughs> yeah, I had a funny thought with this one. I remember Tim Hansen, who works down in Molly Full Asset Management, coming back from spending a lot of time in Latin America and commenting on how uh, Walmart had done a great job of getting stores near public transit. And I just remember thinking at the time, oh, interesting. <laughs> they must have been really ahead of the curve on getting good locations and permitting. <laughs> <laughs> you're, su- you're suggesting that maybe there I can't help but wonder other that possibilities was somehow tied to it. Um, obviously, a lot of shareholders jumping ship today, 
Um, I mentioned the trading volume. I mean, normal. This is a stock that normally trades, you know, just under nine million shares per day. Um, by one o'clock, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-four, twenty-five million. So um, clearly, uh, there are a lot of investors who don't want any part of this. Um, for those who are looking at, to, you know, are thinking about jumping ship. Where do you go? Because this is a big retailer. As you said, Jason, this is a company that's not going away anytime soon. Um, I guess the investment thesis for most of the past decade has been, if not entirely, at least largely built around the fact that this is a stock that pays a steady dividend. Where do you go if you're an investor thinking about, um, you know what, I don't like the uncertainty of uh, potential legal ramifications. I'm looking elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you could go one of two ways with it. I mean, if you're having to trade a retailer for a retailer, I mean, you look at something like Target, that's a bit of a different company because it's something like five times as small, but there's at least, you know, plenty of growth opportunity there. But if you're looking for a big, you know, stalwart market leader that's got a tremendous amount of global exposure, I mean, I'd look at something like McDonald's. I mean, that's a company that, you know, owns pretty much the entire world. They make about 70% of their money outside of the U.S. A uh, great reputation for returning a lot of cash to shareholders in the form of dividends, and they've bought back about 20% of the stock over the last uh, seven or eight years, creating even more value. I mean, the stock has killed the market, and I think it's going to continue to do so for some time to come. I know it's a company you follow closely, and this is an issue we've talked about before, so I have to ask, in terms of the share buybacks, do you feel like they've done a good job of that? Because we've talked before about how a lot of companies don't do a great job of sort of timing share buybacks. It sounds like you think McDonald's has done a pretty good job well, of that. I think, yeah, and I think the record speaks for itself. I mean, when you look at it, you can see that the company's balance sheet reflects a lower share count outstanding, significantly lower over time. Uh, you can see that they've continued to increase the amount of dividends they've paid out. In fact, over the last seven or eight years, they've doubled the amount of dividends that they've actually paid out to shareholders. So, they have a reputation for creating value. And I mean, this you know goes back to a lot of what uh, CEO Skinner has done in his time there. We know he's leaving in June, uh, but I think Don Thompson, the COO who's taking over, who's also been with the company for a long time, I imagine he's going to continue with that same philosophy because it's not like McDonald's is a tremendous growth opportunity as much as it is something that's just going to continue to to really own their space in the market on a global global scale. Joe, what do you think? I like Procter & Gamble. I like McDonald's. That was a good one. I like Procter & Gamble. It's a good trade-off there. They're both global brands, consumer-focused, steady stalwarts, pay a nice dividend. The difference is I think P&G's earnings power is a lot more durable. Retail is just such a brutal space. I think P&G's brands, you've got your tides, your pampers of the world, have a lot more legs and will be around for a lot longer. And for that reason, I think you'll see P&G dramatically outperform Walmart over, say, 10 years. Shares of Hasbro down more than 3% this morning on the Toymaker's latest earnings. Jason Moser, what What's going on with Hasbro? Well, last week it was Mattel. This week it's Hasbro. I was going to say. I was going to say, if you have a hankering for owning a toy company, then boy, have these past <laughs> two weeks been good for you because they've presented some buying opportunities. And uh, Mattel, you know, got hit to the tune of about nine percent uh, when it, you know, missed earnings. And, and Hasbro, I know, is, is getting hit as well. You know, this this is the spring training, like they've called it, for these toy companies. I mean, they're coming off of decent holiday season. Uh, sales in North America and Canada in particular for Hasbro were down. Uh, but when you look at it uh, internationally speaking, and, and, and it's important to note this because you know, international revenues contribute about half of the overall revenues, they did pretty well in uh, Latin America and um, Europe as well. Uh, international sales were up 14%. So you see a lot of their big retail customers like Walmart, for example, and Target, they're cutting back on their purchases, tightening up inventory. But again, you know, I mean, you're looking at Hasbro, which is is basically you know one of the one of the biggest toy plays out there, and um, 
probably come this holiday season, we're going to be looking back at a stock that's performed pretty well. And, and you know, I think this is just one of those blips. Is this really just a, 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 an issue of cyclicality where it's just, you know, I mean, partly because. Uh, as you said, Mattel's earnings uh, kind of uh, disappointing as well. Partly. And I think one of the concerns, and it's a genuine concern, I think it's a valid concern, is that as technology improves and takes over more and more of our lives, these toys become more interactive. And so, you know, we we grew up with Mr. Potato Head and Weeble Wobbles. Well, let's just not Those were advanced today, toys at the time. Today it needs to be So you could put his Mr. eyes Potato where his Head. mouth is. The Weeble Wobbles have to jump and, like, download something in order for them to really be effective now. And I, so I think that's one of the biggest concerns is that you're seeing these companies trying to become more entertainment companies as they grow. And that's why they develop these relationships with companies like Disney. You see Hasbro is going to, you know, they have some some relationships with these movies coming out and Battleship and, and the Avengers. And so they're trying to become more entertainment companies as time goes on. And, and that's going to be where that really comes into play. Joe? Yeah, I think these are both secular shorts. In the long term, I think they're both looking at a really tough struggle. Um, the biggest competitor to these guys aren't other toy makers. It's Apple and it's Facebook and it's Twitter. And it's a social web where people are spending more time, kids are spending more time. And it's smartphones and tablets where kids are just, you know, consuming these 99 cent games and apps that they're spending all their time on. And it's not necessarily a better product. It's just that the mind share is getting eaten up. I mean, there's always going to be room for toys. Right. Well, so Mr. Potato Head, instead of the physical right. Mr. Potato Head, I mean, you know, it's got to be like an app. There's got to be like an app for that. It's, I mean, I have a seven-year-old daughter, and Santa brought her a Kindle Fire last year. So, I mean, it's it starts young now, and technology is really taking over. So, they're going to have to adapt, or, you know, Joe makes a great point. They're going to suffer. I got a quote from the lead uh, paragraph of the Associated Press report of Hasbro's earnings. Uh, and I'm quoting here, Hasbro was weighed down by costs related to staff cuts and weak sales of my littlest pet shop <laughs> miniatures and other girls' toys. So it sounds like the solution for Hasbro is obvious. It's got to be a My Littlest Pet Shop app. Maybe, maybe. But I've got a better solution, okay? <laughs> uh, Mattel has horror, Monster High. Sure, okay? yeah. Okay, so, I mean, you, we've seen oh, that, and I guess... We so, know all about Monster High in my I'm house. suggesting the ultimate merger here between Monster High and My Littlest Pet Shop. So you've got spooky animals in high school. It's a can't miss. I'm excited. <laughs> Nestle has agreed to pay nearly $12 billion for Pfizer's infant nutrition business. Uh, Joe, Pfizer is an inside value recommendation. Um, as a Fire, uh, Pfizer shareholder, I have to ask, if Pfizer's about to get this big check with lots of zeros on it, why are the shares down slightly this morning? Did, did Pfizer not get enough in this deal? What's going on? Well, keep some perspective. Pfizer's a $170 billion company. So the difference between a good price for the sale, which is about $12 billion, and a bad price of, say, you know, $9, $10 billion really isn't that big a deal in okay. the grand scheme of things. Another thing to remember is that while this is a smart move for Pfizer, because it is kind of a non-core business that doesn't really get to drugs and R&D, which is more their bread and butter, or at least used to be their bread and butter, and it's what they're supposedly good at. Uh, you know, it was a valuable business that was spending off a lot of cash, very profitable, with, you know, a big growth runway ahead, and it will plug nicely into Nestle's portfolio. It's very emerging market-focused, already has great distribution. I mean, it's a great deal for both of them, because non-core Pfizer tucks right in at Nestle, and even though they paid what looks like a steep price, they're going to get a lot of value out of these uh, brands for a long time. 
Does Pfizer have plans for the cash? Uh, is it just to reinvest it in the business? Probably uh, throw it away. I was just going to say, or is, or is this a company that, as we've talked about with Cisco Systems, do they have a reputation for maybe just not being that great with cash? Well, other than the Wyeth acquisition, where they just really paid through the nose, I think they've done a decent job of returning cash. They've paid out a lot in dividends. They've bought back a lot of stock. Now, this is a case where I don't think the share buybacks over the last decade have been very fruitful, uh, but that's probably what you're looking at. Does this deal make the stock more attractive to you, or do you think it doesn't really affect the valuation all that much? Very little. I doubt I'd have a meaningful change in my Pfizer valuation. If anything, I'd be more interested in Nestle, uh, which I think is a great business, and I've been looking at a lot lately. And this could be you know, maybe an incremental upside to them. Beam Incorporated, the producer of Jim Beam and Maker's Mark, is buying Pinnacle Vodka and Calico Jack Rum for $605 million. Shares of Beam down 2% this morning. What's going on? Does Wall Street not think highly of this move? Do they think that Beam paid too much? What do, what do we think here? You're, I, think, I, think they were, I think that when Beam split off from Fortune, the immediate assumption was at some point Beam was going to be a takeover candidate, and people started placing their bets accordingly. Uh, I mean, when you look at Beam, it's about a $9 billion company versus something like Diageo, which is about $64 billion. And ultimately, down the road, maybe that will be the case. Maybe it will be an acquisition. Uh, maybe it will be an acquisition target. But I mean, for me, I really like this acquisition that Beam's making because number one, you know, it's really just it embodies the reason why it split from Fortune in the first place to really let the spirit segment shine. And Beam has a tremendous portfolio of uh, of name brands in there now, albeit a bourbon heavy portfolio of brands until this acquisition here. Not that there's anything. Not wrong that there's with anything that. wrong with that. I mean, yeah, it's it's. Uh, but we know that. I mean, vodka is a very fast growing part of the segment uh, of these of the spirit segment and I think that uh, you know to top this in there it gives them a little bit more uh, portfolio power and, and you know wow I like it does this uh, sort of flipping uh, what you said Jason does this in any way make beam a more attractive takeover candidate albeit a more expensive one if you're Diageo and you're looking at a company like beam and now it's got you know a, a broader portfolio does that help or, I think it does or, I mean I think I think a bigger player like Diageo looks at this if they're looking at this and they say well okay we're gonna let you know somebody else kind of go through and do the grunt work of sort of consolidating some of these little tuck-in acquisitions to build their portfolio and then when the time comes they'll be able to kind of come in there and make an offer that, that beam won't really uh, have a problem refusing I assume and, and they won't have to worry so much about the integration of all of these different uh, little little brands. It's more or less just the integration of being the company. So I could see it happening. I mean, it's it's not something I expect, but I could certainly see it. Joe, what do you think? Well, as you know, my dad owns a liquor store. It's the family business. I gave him a call this morning to chat him up about what he thinks about Pinnacle, and he said it's one of the hottest brands they've got <laughs> in the store in terms of growth. Uh, just for a little perspective, it's priced somewhere between like a Smirnoff and an Absolute. So it's not super premium, but it's not El Cheapo either. Yep. And that's a good target range for them to be in. And, you know, Jason made a comment earlier about they got everything from like cookie dough to mango uh, <laughs> it's like offerings. It's like flavored vodka. Right. And it's, you know, not really my cup of tea, but it is important to remember that there's a wide drinking taste out there and they're appealing to a lot of them. And apparently the brand's hot. So well, get some better distribution and marketing power. Yeah, and we it. were digging into this a little bit before we started taping, just this notion that the if you look at the spirits industry writ large, it is, it is expanding. It has expanded over the last 15 years or so. And part of that has to be sort of looking at 
uh, who their customer is and who their customer isn't and figuring out, well, how do we get those people in? I know that uh, just as a, a not a shareholder, but as a consumer of bourbon, um, that the bourbon space has expanded to include sweeter bourbons, looking to bring in people who you know targeting women among others. Um, but it, it seems like what we're talking about with vodka, it seems like that's part of the play as well. Well, and I think that beer is a very it's a very local market. In other words, you know you're going to see different tastes. Uh, for different beers uh, wherever you go. But ultimately, at the end of the day, beer is still beer. And I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can play the spirit segment, lots of different flavors, lots of different types of liquor out there that can make a lot of different kinds of drinks. And just, I mean, just from my experience in traveling around the world, I mean, I've seen where it just seems that spirits in general are a much more uh, socially popular, socially acceptable thing as opposed to beer. And so, you know, I think, yeah, the, the, the numbers don't lie. Spirits are picking up share on beer, and I think that's going to continue to be the case for the next decade plus. Uh, and I think that you've got companies like Beam and, and, you know, Diageo out there taking advantage of that. And finally, uh, we didn't get to this story last week, but the SEC brought charges against twin brothers in the UK for allegedly touting a stock-picking robot that could identify penny stocks about to increase in value. Um, this is back in 2007 when the brothers were 16 years old. Um, got to admire their, their gumption, if nothing else. Um, they sold newsletter subscriptions for $47 a year. They had about 75,000 subscribers. They also promoted companies' penny stocks for a fee. Um, so they're getting paid both it's ways. It's a great business model. That's <laughs> a great business model. All told, uh, the SEC is saying that these two brothers cleared $3 million. Wow. That's, uh, that's nice work if you can get it, it's albeit robot, right? possibly illegal. Um, um, we were talking beforehand, robots. We've talked about robots before. All sorts. Underrated robot? Overrated robot? What do you got? Okay, so do you remember back in, I think it was like 1979, a movie, a Disney movie, I think it was called The Black Hole? Yes. Remember that? Okay, yes, so I do. there's like a, an evil robot in that movie called Maximilian. Okay. And he was he was pretty I think he's underrated. I mean he had those things that shot out of his arms that were like propellers that go and dice things up. Man, underrated. You never hear anything else about him. I bet you they remake that movie, they could go crazy with that robot. It sure sounds a lot better than making battleship out of a board <laughs> game. Uh, Joe, what do you got? Do you have an overrated or an underrated robot? Underrated Polly's robot from Rocky Two. <laughs> <laughs> that was no it was Rocky Four. Rocky was it four? It was Rocky yeah, four. Yeah, it was four. Paul was four. He was just yeah. I don't know. That robot was so far ahead of its time, and I remember watching the movie and being like, "I don't know of anyone who's got a toy remotely like that." I don't think there's technology like that today. <laughs> Here's the thing about that robot in the movie that I didn't think about until years later. So there's Polly gets a robot, and then do you remember like halfway through the movie? The voice of the robot changes, and now it's like this seductive. Siri? Yeah, it's, it's like this seductive female voice. And it wasn't until years later that I thought, wait a minute, did Polly do that? Like this, Hello, like Polly. Polly, who's just sort of you know not the smartest looking guy in the world. Does he have like some mad? programming skills that we don't know I don't know think about? so. Polly might be the dumbest character <laughs> yeah. of any movie I've ever seen. You gotta love Polly, That though. robot reminded me of 2XL. Man, you remember that thing? No. What's 2XL back in the day, the little educational toy where you plug the 8-track tape into. No. It's just you know who was not overrated? T-1000. I mean, you're paying up for quality there. Is that, that, that's one of the Terminators? Yeah, it's uh, the second one. The second T2. one. Robert Patrick. That was a hardcore <laughs> robot. That was a hardcore robot. I'm going C-3PO for overrated. I know that might be heresy among any of our listeners who are big Star Wars fan, but if you think about, I mean, 
I'm sorry. The little saw that he brings out in the, when the, when they're with the Ewoks there to get like, come on. I just want. I just wanted more. Dude, from man, C- you gotta have like WD forty that thing or something. That's just it's not practical. All right, Jason Moser, Joe Maker, guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Flurry. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. 